Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast with me, Mark Cribb. Now another week and something is clearly in the air with more and more restaurants or hospitality venues trying to reopen in some sort of guise. Maybe it's the frustration of sitting idle, maybe it's the recognition that the industry is very broken and some sort of pivot for survival is going to be essential for those businesses that can do so and many unfortunately cannot. I saw Mitch Tonks is doing some great things with local suppliers, providing an opportunity for his customers to buy direct from the fishing boats or asparagus from the farmers and collecting them from outside his restaurant in Brixham. Another lovely sign of the food supply community looking after each other and helping each other out. On a personal level, I've also opened my town's first drive through restaurant using my hotel parking bays as a collection point every 10 minutes for completely contactless order, payment and collection. And whilst I only took about 7% of a normal spring Saturday's trade, so it's certainly not a viable business model, it was very exciting to see the kitchens open and a few excited and loyal customers waving from their car windows with big smiles on their faces. Humbling as ever to get their support. And talking of humbling, one lovely customer even got in touch to offer to lend me £5,000 to help keep the restaurants open with no interest and no particular repayment date in mind. Another great indication of just how much love and support is out there for local community venues. On a national level, the industry continues to fight through Hospitality Union, continuing to campaign most importantly for the national timeout to see a nine-month rent-free period for the industry. If you've not signed up already, head over to hospitalityunion.co.uk and pop in your details to join over 2,500 other venues to back that campaign. Along with a cut in VAT, raising of the 51k rateable value cut-off for grants and a staggered extension to the furlough scheme. Now as Sunday approaches, we wait nervously for the government's plan to release lockdown. I don't think there is too much optimism of what that will look like for bars and restaurants, but for one, I hope venues with outside terraces might be able to trade in some guise in June. There was a study released in China demonstrating that only two people had caught the virus outside and most contagious was the home or public transport. Our fresco dining may be the only option this summer. We've had some stunning weather, so I suppose it will probably pour it down with rain from the moment we are all released. Right, on to today's chat where I am catching up with Andrew Stephen from the Sustainable Restaurant Association. I've seen a number of posts from the SRA offering practical support, not only for members, but for anyone hitting their website. And whilst much of that is really useful and detailed, I particularly enjoyed chewing the fat with Andrew on some of the sustainable opportunities that would be foolish to waste as we look at what our industry could look like moving forwards. As we inevitably reduce our menus to simplify production, both to have fewer chefs in the kitchen for distancing purposes, but also to reduce costs and waste, is now the chance more than ever to look at buying local, purchasing from people rather than brands, and caring about the impact of what we purchase on the land and the environment. I certainly hope so, and Andrew is well placed to talk about what this could look like. Could government support even be tailored and focused to offer additional support to those doing the right thing and trading more ethically in the food and drink space? Complicated, but a great concept. And remember, if you can support the podcast via the tip char at humansofhospitality.co.uk forward slash donate, you could become a patron via the Patreon platform and that would be exceptionally helpful 
and appreciated. With no businesses left personally to help finance this podcast, I would really, really appreciate your support. Thank you so much and please enjoy today's conversation. Andrew Stephen from the Sustainable Restaurant Association, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hugely appreciated. Before we get going, can I just check, are you at home and are you and your family all well? At home, all well, if not mind-numbingly bored. (laughs) Okay, yeah. It's tricky. Have you you pretty much been based at home the whole time or have you been able to go into the office at all? Uh, No, I did one kind of post-slash-technology run to the office uh, in late March. Um... Yeah, the team, there's, there's 20 of us, and we started working from home uh, in yeah, the second week in March, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. We yeah, so... a bit earlier. We, we were in a shared office, and there was already quite a lot of jitters about, uh, yeah, I guess the, the difficulty in sort of controlling and cleaning and isolating and things like that. So, we, um, yeah, we took the decision to work from home then. Excellent. All right. Well, you, you spotted it early. We'll come to that. So uh, for people that, that don't know you, can you just explain a little bit uh, what is the Sustainable Restaurant Association and what's your role there, please, Andrew? Sure. Yeah. So the Sustainable Restaurant Association is a social enterprise and not-for-profit uh, membership organization. Uh, and we exist to help decision makers in hospitality to make good environmental and social decisions. We do that through uh, offering a membership product Uh, that people pay for or used to pay for uh, kind of on a monthly or annual basis. And that gives them access to lots of tools, ideas, resources, uh, an audit and each other uh, so that we can kind of work together to try and work through some of the complex kind of environmental and social issues that come with running a restaurant. Amazing. And when you say used to pay for, does that mean you're amongst the many direct debits that have been cancelled from restaurants? Again, we we jumped a bit early on that. So... um, so, yeah, I, I guess it felt uh, particularly pointless to be chasing restaurants for subscription cash for, for, for our services uh, when they're not trading. So we've given every member a, a payment holiday uh, of three months and we'll keep that under review um, as we go forward. It, it's, it's our aim that we would support our members to, uh, yeah, kind of reopen right, as it were, and, and then we'll, we'll hopefully kick back on with membership or something very close to it uh, when people are, are trading again in, in volume. Amazing. Yeah, it's nice that you're demonstrating, I suppose, well, not even how it should be, almost how it needs to be, I suppose, for the sector. That must have financial implications on the SRA, though. Have you got some reserves to get through that period, have you? Uh, I mean, we're not like Scrooge McDuck, like <laughs> frolicking in a, a vault of uh, cash. <laughs> but uh, we did manage to bring forward some grant funding, um, and we have taken advantage of the... Um, the, the furlough scheme so yes we um have got kind of operating capital to run for um for the foreseeable um okay so that's good yeah our, our business is um it's mainly membership revenue um and we also run some sort of project work and uh, we get grant funding for certain bits and pieces of what we do and some of that's been a bit more resilient uh, some of the kind of more researchy stuff so um the reduced team, uh, yeah, are sort of continuing on with that stuff. Okay, that's good. Um, and when this sort of started to unfold, before we talk about the sort of impact in the industry and the, and the stuff you've been involved on, specifically, I guess, the impact on, on the SRA, but how did this come about? You mentioned earlier uh, when we were chatting that you actually moved out to your home office uh, fairly early in mid-March. Can you just talk about you know, what your observations of, of what was coming across from China and what made those decisions happen quite early? 
Um, it's really difficult to remember what we were thinking and doing in mid-March, isn't it? I don't know if anyone else. It is, that. absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I think that, uh, I don't think we were particularly prescient. I, I think we, we were in central London and a lot of the team were commuting across London every day. Uh, it was in that sort of growing paranoid period where coughs and splutters were, you know, covered with farts rather than the other way around. Um, yeah. And... I think there were some other businesses in our in our office that we share that were sort of making their own decisions and sending communications around. And um, yeah, we just took that call really. Um, I, I, I think in terms of what, what we saw coming, I, I think at the time we, to be quite honest, uh, thought that it would be a, maybe a couple of weeks. Um, and then <laughs> there's been this sort of overlapping wave of realisation that it's going to be a bit longer. Um, but certainly when we first all started working from home, we, we did it as a sort of two week trial to see how we got on. Um, and yeah, that was sort of six weeks ago. Right. And, and operationally, has that been reasonably effective? Are you using video meetings and stuff like that? And it's, uh, it's working okay. Yeah, I, I guess on a level. Yes. I think quite a lot of the stuff that we used to do with members um was about face to face so whether that's our kind of kind of training days or events program pub quizzes meetups awards um so all of that's a lot more challenging we've been running webinars but they're never quite as interactive uh we certainly don't feel like we get as much back from running those as um in terms of learning and and and, and helping us get kind of better in our advice um, but I, I guess internally, the, the team dynamic uh, is working pretty well. Um, say of, of the 20 of us that are uh, on payroll, there's only five that are not furloughed at the moment. So in some ways, it's a sort of simpler job to work out what everyone should do each day. Right. And one of the things you've been doing in that time period is collating, I guess, the thoughts on the industry. I've seen you send out some some surveys uh what what sort of research have you been doing and what's the uh, i suppose the conclusion of that what sort of information have you ascertained well i think it's been a bit dyspraxic you know um probably you know i should carry the can for uh that fundamentally that it feels like a really weird time to be trying to do strategy and planning i think that um depending on new bits of news that get released week on week um, it feels like we are sort of flitting about a bit uh, in terms of what impact that might have on us. I guess what what I've kind of come to realise, I think, is that we are we're essentially trying to do quite a lot of different things to support the industry um, at, at quite a lot of different uh, layers of, of thought, if you like. So there's there's a set of stuff around kind of managerial support, if you like, about reaching new customers and managing cash flow and thinking about simplifying menu and changing suppliers. And um, it's, it's felt like, you know, knowing how much our members are struggling uh, and, and surveying them and seeing that kind of over half are not confident that they're going to survive if they can't reopen before August. Um, it feels churlish to only be talking about the long term. So, you know, we, we've been really kind of trying to dive in on, um, some of the kind of managerial stuff, uh, operationals, th things that are going to have a direct impact on cash flow. So we were helping members work out how to, you know, access the furlough scheme and, and, and stuff like that right right in the first few weeks. 
Um, I guess the next layer from that, and, and as, as we kind of kicked into kind of late April and May, we've been thinking a bit more entrepreneurially, I guess, about um, revenue diversification and some of the different things that members can do. So we've run webinars and, and guidance on moving to delivery and different ways of doing that, looking at kind of veg box schemes or recipe kits, meal kits. Um, we've got a tool that's freely available for people to use, whether they're members or not, uh, that helps you kind of model the likely um, income and, and break even from different um, alternative business models that you might be considering. Um, uh, yeah, so I guess any support we can give on that kind of entrepreneurial bit. And I think I think from a sustainability perspective, we do see a sort of glimmer of opportunity there that, you know, if people are already reviewing their supply chain, reviewing their menu, um, if we get in from the ground up a slightly different set of assumptions about uh, how much is spent on the food and, and what other costs are incurred, uh, we, we might be able to, I guess, do better than go back to normal in terms of some of the environmental outcomes from, from those revenue streams. And, and, and then I guess the third sort of layer is sort of the real long-term stuff and, you know, will, will consumers turn into food citizens and uh, how, you know, might our view of what we mean by sustainable change um, and I, I guess how how does an industry that's going to be receiving a few billion of public funding uh, respond to the need to potentially define its public benefit more clearly? Um, so I think the work we've been doing kind of flits about a bit between those three things. But I, I guess what we're trying to do over the next couple of weeks and, and, and months is help the industry to reopen right uh, in ways that combine all three that contain the detail of what, what you need to do on a managerial perspective, some of the ideas and avoiding bear traps on the entrepreneurial side, but are connected up to a sort of more stable vision of, um, I guess, the public benefit of the businesses that, that you're running or working in. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And that feels like a very sort of chronological approach and, and probably represents, I guess, most of our experiences as operators, which initially was the technicalities of shutdown and furloughing and, like you say, the business admin, I suppose, moving in now to, oh, my God, how do we actually generate some cash? And then, yeah, absolutely, the longer term, what's that going to look like? On, on the basis that we've probably been through most of the administrative stuff now, most people have probably got that done. On, on the business diversification, a lot of businesses seem to jump on the, you know, turning the restaurant into a shop or, or, or a veg box or a delivery. What's, have you had any kind of experiences to whether that feels sustainable and, and are people just doing it because they've got to do something? Because I, I don't think it can sort of compensate for the drop in revenue in, in a restaurant, I guess. But have you seen any good examples of people doing it? And is it is it working or is it just keeping people um, from going crazy sat at home, do you think? I mean, there's certainly a good amount of the latter in there. I think Andre Lussman, one of our kind of uh, dearest friends and members, talked about moving to um, delivery of meals at home as a, a way of sort of keeping the light on uh, and also paying staff until you got the furlough money. Um, so th there's, a, there's an important kind of symbolic quality, I guess, to sort of not pulling the shutters up completely. Um, I, I, I think in truth, um, whilst we ask our members for lots of information about sustainability in terms of environmental and social outcomes, we, we're not in the, I guess, pattern of asking for P&L data. Uh, we don't API to their zero or other finance account. So 
<clears throat> I can only really give you anecdotes. Uh, I, I think uh, people that are doing well uh, are maybe getting up towards 20%, uh, 25% of their pre-corona uh, times um, turnover through those uh, methods. So uh, I don't think there's anyone that we know of that is, um, yeah, kind of fundamentally rebuilding their business um, enough to cover the cost yeah. base. But, you know, in, in a way, that's kind of the wrong framing, if you like. I, I, I think as we think about, you know, the next kind of six months, 12 months, 18 months, um, I think it's likely that we go through a series of more intense and less intense lockdowns as opposed to a sort of return to normal imminently. And it's likely that any existing restaurant business model is kind of incompatible with that new world uh, until the end of 2021. So um, it, it might not mean that, uh, you know, delivery or meal kits on its own is going to be able to cover all of the costs. Um, <clears throat> but I, I think that there are some other, yeah, kind of managerial stuff you can put in place around, I guess, cost reduction. Yeah, no, agreed. I think, yeah, we're going to need to be a much more diverse and I suppose reactive. I mean, luckily we are full of uh, creative people, I guess, who can uh, come up with interesting and creative ways to respond, but uh, yeah, it's well, going to like be challenging with the- Like yourself, the drive, drive-through uh, restaurant that you've been telling me about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We launched that last week. Yeah, it's literally we we only one of our venues has got a uh, a car park with sort of easy access to the inside. So we decided to set that one up as a as a drive through with just six bays, so people completely contactless. They could order, uh, pay, and collect. We, you know, they pull into a car parking bay and allotted time. Lift up the boot, food goes in the boot, and they drive off in sort of sixty seconds. And uh, yeah, I guess the, the the absolute primary motivation was just to be seen to be doing something with the community and, and I guess so many people had, had sort of told us and I'm sure this is reflective across the whole industry nationally is every, all of customers are going oh do delivery do delivery and it's a really tricky model we tried it before with a couple of scooters and a car on the road and it's just very inefficient you know if you've got hundreds of people in your restaurant ordering uh, and you can take multiple orders at the same time and, and take it 20 feet to a table is completely different to sticking it on the back of a motorbike and, and driving your dinner you know 45 minutes across town and back it's just such an inefficient model so i sympathize for anybody that's you know having to learn now i feel quite lucky that we learned the complexities of delivery a couple of years ago and, and we haven't thrown too much money at it now because the challenge for people trying to do it now is you know with zero pounds revenue coming in you've got zero money to play with and the complexities of furloughing and not being allowed to use your team to do any revenue generating work i think is really difficult because you know even for us you you, you just want to try something maybe on a on a saturday night for four hours um, but the, the complexity is you're not allowed to use your team to mm. do that yeah have you, have you had any kind of conversations i know you're also representing the industry with government but have you been involved at all in any furlough conversations and is that coming up around this sort of transition i suppose about this sort of simplicity of it's, it's either off or on doesn't feel like a, a sustainable sort of approach with that i guess yeah, I, I guess there are lots of modifications that people are looking to make to the existing furlough regulations. Other than, you know, kind of acknowledging that they've been an amazing lifeline that um, we're used to kind of bashing government. But for once, they they managed to pull off something relatively efficient. I think within five days of uh, the filling in the form online, we got the money in our bank. Um, I, I guess the main 
piece of work we've been doing in our outreach and lobbying around furlough is about uh, a sort of progressive relaxation of it. So this sort of fear of a bit of a cliff edge that might come at the end of June. And we were very um, heartened to see Rishi Sunak yesterday announcing that there won't be a cliff edge, uh, although we kind of await more details on that. So whether it's about a progressive uh, ratcheting down of the percentage um, or whether it's something more akin to kind of a turnover-based uh, rebate, um, we think there's some kind of interesting options there. <clears throat> I, I guess, you know, going into the slightly more, uh, I guess, stargazy middle distance, we think that, um, you know, as as real and painful and devastating as this shock has been to lots of particularly independent operators, uh, it's important to kind of balance government uh, subsidy with public benefit. And I think that, um, you know, not all restaurants are equal. And um, I guess as difficult as it is to say out loud, we'd support uh, a kind of channeling of continued government support to be progressive rather than ubiquitous and to um, proportionally benefit those businesses that are creating public benefit more and for longer. Um, so, you know, that might be a bit self-serving, but um, I, I guess businesses that are addressing the climate emergency, businesses that are supporting UK agricultural transition through their procurement, um, businesses that are basically providing healthy, sustainable diets, promoting biodiversity and leaving people and communities in a better place than they found them, we, we think deserve uh, more and we think they're more worth protecting. So um, that's been our push for government and, and that's what we're going to try and um, pull through to create, I guess, a bit more intrinsic incentive for people to um, do what we consider the right thing. Yeah, that would be an incredible if you could pull that off. And, and there does seem to be this sort of uh, community swelling of, of people who, who want the world post-pandemic to be different to the world sort of pre-pandemic, I guess, and less about huge, giant global corporations, you know, exploiting the reserves of the planet. Um, but that, that, is, that, is that realistic? Because it must be really difficult. I'm thinking in, in Rishi's shoes, you know, the complexity of trying to manage the economy and and uh, some of the bigger players that probably employ a lot of people but fundamentally sell maybe crap food and and, and get people you know, fat and, and sell booze compared to maybe some of your members who do it for the right reasons. I, w- I would love it if that could actually be the case, that the support was more focused. But do you think that's realistic? I don't know. I, I think um, it's worth trying. And, and I think even a bit of signalling on that might also help um, – some of the, I guess, kind of diner-facing follow-ups we're going to be doing. You know, ultimately, uh, you can't create a kind of government subsidy lever towards a completely sustainable restaurant sector on its own. Um, but I, I think it, it strikes us as an opportune time to be having that conversation and we'll kind of see where it goes. Um, I think you're right that, you know, people are you know, being surveyed, I think, was it Food Foundation said that only 9% of people in their survey want um, things to go, quote-unquote, back to normal. A um, bit poetic, but I, I don't know if you caught kind of Arundhati Roy's uh, piece in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago that described the pandemic as a portal um, and that it's a chance to kind of break with the past and imagine the world anew. Um and there were, yeah, I guess the thought that we can either walk through that portal, sort of dragging our dead ideas and dead rivers, or we can walk through it lightly um, with little luggage. 
And ultimately, if that happens, that's going to be down to what uh, choices people make about where to go and eat out and what to order. Um, the government can probably only be responsible for part of that. But um, yeah, it just feels like such a key moment where people are, you know, doubling down on certain parts of their business. They'll either be making yes, no decisions on property, yes, no decisions on staff, menu, offer, uh, supply chain. Um, yeah, we, we want to try and uh, be as kind of loud and influential about what we think those decisions should be. Yeah, I, I think that is without a doubt, a, a, you know, feels like a really interesting opportunity. And I think as restaurateurs, you know, maybe we've been, like well, I suppose as the industry, I guess, has, has maybe had this sort of race to mediocrity a little bit in the fact that margins have been so tight for the last few years. And it's now well publicized about just how little the restaurant industry was making and, and how quickly uh, things went pear-shaped as soon as our, our, our revenue dropped to zero. So there is a need to come out of this, you know, e- even just with simpler menus, certainly to start with, because we can't have the same number of chefs in the kitchen. And if we're having simpler menus, then yeah, what, what we focus on and, and hopefully this sort of groundswell of support f- for community, certainly, and I, I've said it before on this podcast, but you know, my local high street, you know, I've never seen the greengrocers and the butchers and the bakery as busy as they are because people can't get into the shops. And, mm-hmm. and if the restaurants can do the same and I've got suppliers who I owe thousands of pounds to who you know I've worked with, with for 15 years and have never owed a penny to in the past who are being so supportive and really want to kind of help and and, and try and get us restarted with, without sort of payback of all of that cash instantaneously and it reminds you of that sense of community and, and always working with people not brands so yeah it, it does feel yeah. like an exciting time but certainly the smaller menu you know creates an opportunity to yeah to, to buy more directly maybe from the, the farmers I guess I think I think in a way you know independence out of London um uh, are, are we just despite you know enormous challenges and, and and perhaps more more keenly felt cash flow challenges than some of the bigger boys are arguably in the best position in the whole industry at the moment, but like those that are, you know, genuinely loved in their community. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we think those businesses have probably got the kind of best opportunity to explore other revenue streams. Um, you know, fundamentally, if they're asking themselves, you know, not, not from a paradigm of this is all going to go back to normal in a few weeks and we just need to hold on with government support until it does. But, thinking more fundamentally about 18 to 24 months of, you know, period of suppressed trade on the old business model. Um, But asking the question, like, who are the customers that are willing and able to buy from us for the next 18 months? And and what can we sell them that they want and that's economically and practically viable um, that will kind of survive the disruption of a few phases of more and less intense lockdowns? I think... That's the kind of planning that we, we think that um, businesses should do. And we know that's sort of overwhelmingly complicated and that, you know, in times of stress, there's quite a lot of background noise and dissonance. But um, if nothing else, that's something that we want to help try and do with, with operators that are keen um, and, and sort of work through that together. Yeah, I think it'd be great. I think the biggest challenge probably across the industry is is rent, really, isn't it? It's, it's, the, it's the difficulty, the complexity of the fact that all the rents were negotiated in a time of you know, peak occupancy and and high turnover, uh, albeit with small margin, and coming out the other side, 
you know, it's just completely different. And and the, the scary thing is that even, you know, those those local community well supported places out of town, unless the landlords recognise that if we're taking less money, then we you know, the, the rentals just cannot be worth the same, then so much of the industry is is just gonna disappear, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um we have been engaging with landlords on uh, exactly that, uh, trying to do our bit. I, I think, you know, we don't want to be kind of playing in the margins whilst ignoring the, the big central problem. I, I think what we know is that for a lot of our members, rent uh, has crept uh, sort of insidiously over 20% of turnover. Um, and when you've got kind of service charges and, and business rates, which are also a derivative of, of the rental value as well, um, up to a quarter of turnover um, going that way. And I just think fundamentally, if you're sitting down to a plate of dinner, uh, <laughs> you don't want a quarter of that money um, going to rent. I, I think it, it, it's clear that, that that was already unsustainable long before um, Corona times. I, I guess the real question is then, well, what are we asking? You know, what, what, what's the solution? What, what do we want landlords to do about it? I think we have been working with um, Jonathan Downey in the kind of national timeout uh, campaign uh, and, and, and taking that to landlords and trying to get feedback. I guess, um, long story short, it's it's an incredibly difficult thing for landlords to vote for. Uh, but, but on the flip side, um, you know, in a way, landlords are kind of the only people in this whole value chain whose timescales match the kind of uh true kind of uh, timescales that are in play um you know they're, they're thinking about kind of long-term placemaking estate value etc um so we're cautiously optimistic that we might be able to get a good bit of progress there um i i think what we see is happening is is quite a lot of kind of one-to-one negotiation and sometimes involving accountants uh sometimes not um often within an NDA wrap around it that people can't sort of talk about what um, they've been offered. And we think that there needs to be a bit of a sort of blast of fresh air in there and a bit of transparency. And it, it, it may well be that government intervenes if, if there's not. Um, I, I think that, you know, simply moving, trying to move towards a kind of temporary turnover-based uh, rent calculation strikes me as quite sensible, but I'm not a commercial property expert. I, th- I think ultimately... Um, the existing model was based on assumptions of turnover, which are now incorrect, and um, replacing those with more accurate assumptions um, seems to me to be the fairest way of sharing risk. Um, I, I, I think, um, and maybe, maybe we should get a landlord on a future one of these, but um, I, I think one of the real key challenges for landlords to offer the kind of level of reduction that is necessary is if you if you own a building in Soho and you rent it out to a restaurant for £400,000 a year, that building's probably worth 8 million quid. Um, if you only get a hundred grand for it, that building's probably worth a million and a half. And just, just, just the sort of relationship of the kind of asset value to the rental um, means that it's super difficult for landlords to kind of, I guess, go far enough uh, to match the kind of reduction in turnover. But, you know, I guess that's where government intervention might be necessary. Yeah, and I think it's a time period, isn't it? I think the, the, the sad reality is 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 that we don't really have a lot of choice. So the, the sort of the situation at the moment feels like as a as a tenant, you know, as a lessee of a, of a property, uh, we're sort of taking all of the risk, I suppose, in the fact that you know a hundred percent drop in revenue 
at the restaurant side where landlords are still demanding you know 100% of the rent feels like uh, you know it's it's just impossible but as a as an asset holder you know the opportunity to leverage long term finance on an asset you know at least they have that opportunity yeah. whereas an operator in a leasehold property we have no opportunity to raise funds our, our balance sheets have been completely decimated by this you know we're all hemorrhaging cash on a day-to-day basis so basically the option is we all go under and all of those properties are empty or we join forces the government the landlords and the operators and we say look this isn't this isn't a forever solution uh, but yeah the national timeout is, is sort of nine months isn't it nine months rent free and then then there's a chance we'll get back to normal but without that you're going to completely decimate those values you know sort of with a, with a much longer term impact but I do think it's going to need you know as, as Jay he says it's not about government support financially but it is about you know coming up with the mechanism i suppose that enables those landlords you know not to have to pay their finance for nine months exactly. and this potential, I guess, you, know, you know i couldn't agree more i i, I guess it's, it's it's that mechanism which then feels like what what we really should be trying to work out and um i guess that's sort of well beyond my pay grade there's another mechanism i'm quite interested in that's like how do we effectively allow restaurants that have got no cash when they reopen to buy from suppliers that are small and sustainable that need pro forma or payment on delivery and i i think actually it could be a really great opportunity for restaurants to kind of switch up the supply chain to more local more sustainable um if we could find a mechanism that at scale those suppliers uh could get paid on order but then the restaurants had 90 120 day payment terms so you'd only probably need one big bank um to sort of step in on that uh and you create a phenomenal um impact in the supply chain of our industry so Mm, yeah i I guess um anyone with any kind of ideas or contacts for us about um people in financial services that would be interested in that conversation uh, i'd I'd really welcome a a follow-up chat with Mm, that's a really good idea yeah if jd can get the uh, national timeout nailed and he's, he's certainly got some momentum behind it i love that idea yeah if you could do something uh, something similar with the smaller suppliers and uh, henry dimbleby's been off isn't he looking at the sort of state of food and supply and farming in the uk so uh, i don't know have you spoken to him about that yeah so i, I guess they're sort of we're about to launch the kind of draft of the national food strategy um and obviously henry's kind of uh, well connected with Indefra and a lot of the work that's been going on on the kind of um, environmental land management trials. Um, I, I think I've not spoken to Henry in the last couple of weeks. Um, the what my sense is that a lot of that work has kind of paused as people are now kind of looking at more urgent, immediate things. But um, I think there's a good deal of potential there with that Defra work. So ultimately, what they're trying to do is work out what do we replace the common agricultural policy with in terms of farm payments and, and how might we measure the public good at farm level. Um, so trying to kind of lean in and influence that um, for anyone that cares about, you know, biodiversity, the countryside and the, and the UK agricultural system. Um, I think that's the one to, to, to get it right at that level. Because um, if we get it right there, then, you know, various points along the chain, be that a kind of, you know, meal out in a restaurant or a, a supermarket shopping basket, will give you that opportunity to kind of understand the, I guess, um, level to which your purchasing aligns with um, regenerative agriculture. Um, yeah, I, I guess none of that's going to be ready quick enough to 
be the basis for subsidy and um, payments to restaurants uh, in the next year or two. But um, we think that's the kind of landscape that is going that way. And that um, ultimately, in a couple of years' time, it's going to be a lot easier for people to uh, know what your supply chain is and, and what kind of agricultural system um, you're supporting. Uh, and, and we should try and like use this sort of glimmer of opportunity we've got now to kind of reset uh, some of the things that we're doing in the business. Is that what you meant? So you, you talked earlier about the sort of three stages, I suppose, the, the managerial support, the entrepreneurship, and then the long term, you mentioned food citizens. What do you mean by that term, food citizens? Well, like most of the stuff I say, I've stolen it from someone else. Um, I think uh, the Food Ethics Council um, launched a, a, a kind of report a couple of years ago that, that, that talked about food citizenship. So I, I guess the idea, uh, and maybe just Google food citizenship if you're, if you're interested and you'll get a much more eloquent definition than me recalling what I read a couple of years ago, uh, is that um, you know the market is a bit screwed in terms of like a, a, a transaction on some food in that you know people make decisions uh, when they're hungry that are largely about sort of uh, speed, convenience, salt, fat, sugar. But equally, people are stakeholders in lots of the externalities of that food system, be it the kind of relationship it has to the kind of countryside and nature or their own diet and health, or I guess the sort of level of NHS spend on type 2 diabetes and how that kind of feeds into like the, the tax they pay in their salary. So that there's, a, there's a, a much more complex web of connections that people um, are connected to food beyond that sort of narrow purchase so that the market doesn't work uh, in a conventional sense around people making optimised um, choices. So food citizenship is, a, I guess, a, a kind of rallying cry for people in the food system to try to uh, create less negative externalities uh, in as much as they can. So for restaurants, that's really about uh, the food that it buys, the supply chain, the menu, and the customer messaging. Um, and those three tools are probably the best way to try to appeal to people that are, I guess, trying to make more holistically good food choices. Okay. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Good answer. Um, getting back into the practicalities then a little bit, I guess, for, for people listening, you're, you've come up with some sort of practical suggestions. I know on your website, you've got a sort of, sort of special page sort of dedicated to coronavirus, and it's, um, it's split into various sections. But as, as, as we look at how we come out of this and there's been a lot of coverage in the press in the last 10 days around physical distancing in restaurants and what that would look like and how potentially you end up with maybe 60 percent less covers and then we're looking at things like uh you know uh, sneeze screens on bars and whether people can wear masks and for me you know the, the idea of hospitality where people's faces are covered and you can't see the sort of smiles and and the kind of the warmth of, of that you get in restaurants have you got any thoughts or have you been given any advice i suppose on, on what restaurateurs should be doing um to to be able to open maybe not in the normal maybe like you say in 18 months or two years time but over the next two or three months have you seen any good examples have you got any advice on on the practicalities of what people are going to be able to do or need to do to open their restaurant doors yeah so i i I guess from a very practical point of view um there's some advice on our website that we have kind of lifted from an organization in the states called oyster sundays uh with with their blessing which is a kind of critical path to reopening safely and it and it sort of runs through i guess physical interventions like barriers and screens 
uh, and standard operating procedures. So like, I guess, how you run front and back of house environments. Um, so, you know, there's a ton of information out there that, that I think that Oyster Sunday stuff is a really good uh, synthesis of. It's all in the Creative Commons and you can kind of download all the way through to kind of here's something to put in your staff's hand uh, and, and, and they can read. So um, that, that's a really good tool. I, I, I think... I guess more conceptually, um, we don't really know, uh, like so many other people, quite what to do about this. I, I think what we do know from the work we've been doing with members is that um, the idea of reopening with no less than two metres around all staff and um, customers is kind of like the emperor's new clothes. It's just not possible. And lots of people are saying it's possible because they need the money. Um, but fundamentally, it's going to be um, it's it, it's a sort of death knell for for the majority of the sector, and that's it's so extreme that people don't want to talk about that. Um, so I, I guess it's also pretty difficult to kind of weigh in on this and say, government, we don't think that you should enforce two meter physical distancing in restaurants because we're then sort of to some extent gambling with public safety um, for the sake of, I guess, a, a memory of what our businesses were like. So I, I think what's likely to happen is that the government will allow F&B sort of restaurants, hospitality sector to reopen with a slightly amended protocol that listens to some of that reality. Uh, and as long as there's the right level of, I guess, safe operating procedure around hygiene uh, and that there's some reduction in covers, um, then that's going to be allowed that, you know, that's sort of the fact that two meter physical distancing is impossible in most uh, hospitality contexts um, will, will kind of be overlooked. But I, and, and in a way, that's good news in the short term, because it will mean that um, you can generate more revenue from your premises and, you know, some of that rent can get paid off. Um, I, I think it's almost inevitable that that then uh, becomes a place in which coronavirus spreads and um, there'll be a, a sort of slightly on-off uh, period of um, less and more uh, restrictive lockdowns. Yeah, if it feels like you know we, we've seen traffic taken off the streets and we've seen joggers out and we've seen cyclists out. I, w I wonder how many restaurants, if you could reclaim some of the roads, how many restaurants could flip to sort of more terraces and more outside space. Certainly in Europe, um, they, they you know even even in the colder climes, I'm thinking of places like Amsterdam and and Venice, where in the winter they still manage to keep that al fresco dining. I wonder if there'll be a switch for a desire to outside and whether we might need the uh, local authorities to be a little bit more flexible on, on issuing licenses for sort yeah, of street side I, dining. I, I think that's a great idea and we think that will happen, um, you know, just like there was a sort of relaxation on the regulations and planning around being a takeaway. Um, I, I think a sort of level of relaxation around use of um, outdoor dining and outdoor space would be a, a really smart way of um, kind of, I guess, striking that inevitable difficult balance between kind of safety, perceived safety and, 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 and business need. Mm. Certainly selfishly as a, as a restaurateur with a restaurant on the beach, you know, we haven't, we've been looking at the opportunity to almost go, you know what, at, at sort of 50%, 60% less capacity 
internally uh, we're looking at a model where we just flip the whole restaurant into a takeaway only option basically and, and almost like a festival style sort of outside the restaurant having four or five queues and we've been looking at some technology I guess similar to Argos where people can potentially order on their phones and then be given a, a collection point and a collection time and say right at 17.30 at collection point three your food is ready and then you can take it out onto the beach and you know we've got we've got miles of space outside so it would be nice yeah, if the council yeah it'd be nice if they recognized i guess this sort of you can't have a one size fits all and say look restaurants can't open till august and and that yeah whether it fits under the takeaway or whether we say external terraces as long as sort of tables are a certain distance apart but it's just making sure i guess that um yeah there's always a temptation to have a one size fits all but there are some nuances and, and getting that flexibility but we've got a meeting with our mp uh, Thursday, I think, to um, to chat about you know some of those specifics. I guess. Mm. I guess. I guess the one good thing about physical distancing is that it's really clear. <laughs> and, yeah. And I think one of the challenges is going to be how does the government or local authorities allow something more flexible that then doesn't become a race to the bottom. I think um, you know there will be you know certain formats and models that that can cope with this a bit easier i'm sure there'll be plenty of people listening wishing they had a beach outside the restaurant uh, (laughs) they can buy my restaurant pretty cheap at the moment (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i i I guess you know there's a i don't want to sound too negative but i i think if there's ambiguity then it will quickly become a race to the bottom where people sort of feel like i i think you know um certain people have been in the press talking about you know, wanting to get back up to about 70% covers and things like that. It, it's going to be very difficult for people to kind of self-impose restrictions if it doesn't feel like everyone's playing by the same rules. Um, yeah. yeah. No, no, it's true. Yeah, I, I sympathise for the uh, for the government. It's it's a complex issue. So, okay. Well, is there anything else that we've not co- covered, Andrew, conscious of time? Anything in particular that, that the SRA are doing that people should go and check out or any other thoughts that you'd like to share? Um, I, I think... Um, please do check out kind of the SRA.org and our coronavirus support materials. Um, they're a kind of rolling mix of things that are managerial and immediate and some things that are a bit longer term. Please feel free to join our WhatsApp group uh, where we'll be kind of posting breaking news as we see it that, that uh, will give you a kind of heads up earlier than than uh, you might otherwise get it. I, I, I think... Um, whilst it feels a little bit negative uh, sort of date stamped as we are in early may i, I think my advice to um particularly independent people in uh, hospitality is that just really try and think about which customers are willing and able to buy from you for the next 18 months and what you can sell them and just try and be really focused and allow yourself the headspace to be creative on that um and then once you've been creative on that uh use a basic planning tool like a spreadsheet that we've got on our website you can access for free to to look at whether that is going to be a viable business model and and, and what kind of volume you can do um i think that's the sort of planning that we'd really encourage right now Mm, okay and the oyster sunday stuff you mentioned did you you say the links are on your website to that as well there so that's that kind of uh reopening critical path so it's the sort of dizzying like number of things you need to think about uh before reopening your business Perfect. Okay, well, I'll put some links up there. I know the link to the WhatsApp group is on your website as well, isn't it? So I'll put some links on that on the show notes to this as well. 
Okay. Well, look, thank you for, for what you're doing and, you know, representing us and uh, yeah, being able to continue. Uh, and I love some of the ideas around, yeah, what, you know, what the future could like. And if we can grab that opportunity, it'd be really exciting. And uh, thanks for sparing the time today, Andrew. Really good to catch up with you. All right. All the best. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation and a slightly different stance other than an operator and the struggles that we face, but more looking to what the future could look like. Clearly our survival at all is the current focus, but if there is an opportunity to change some of the things we did not like about our business models or the industry model before, let's try and incorporate a better world into our survival strategies. I will pop the links Andrew and I discussed to the Oyster Sunday advice and the general SRA support and the WhatsApp group to join the conversation onto the Humans of Hospitality website. Just head to humansofhospitality.co.uk and click on the episode tab or type Andrew into the search bar. And whilst you're there, please do sign up to the newsletter for a weekly email from me and click on the Patreon link to become a supporter by popping a few quid in the tip jar. A cheeky review on Apple Podcasts also only takes a few seconds and really helps me out. Thanks again and I will catch up with you very soon for a new episode. And whilst I used to release these every Monday morning, I've been a little bit more flexible recently in trying to turn interviews around in just 48 hours or sometimes even same day where chats are particularly time critical in the current fast-paced period of changing advice. I hope that's working okay for you and I do have some episodes ready to release that were recorded pre-lockdown and hope to start getting those out to you soon for a little smidgen of normality. Okay, cheers for now.